So a, um, a question for us to consider before we um, open God's word today. Can anything disrupt the good and perfect plan of God? That's really, this is the question that's been on, uh, kind of in the back of my mind this week if I, as I've been studying our um, passage today in the first couple chapters of Esther. Really, it's uh, one of the larger um, questions of suspense that kind of is looming in the background of, of the entire story as, as we move forward. Can anything or anyone disrupt, hinder the good and perfect plan of God? Because by all accounts, what we see in our passage today, we're going to start at 1-1, the first verse of the book. We're going to go to 2-18. Uh, God is nowhere to be seen in this part of the story. Uh, he's not mentioned in this passage. He's not mentioned anywhere in the rest of the book of Esther, famously. And, and what we see here instead, as the book opens, is this uh, ostentatious display of uh, wealth and pomp by the most powerful nation in, on the planet. Stuff, I mean, this, these opening scenes are just intended to kind of blow your mind at the extravagance that, that's put before you. We also see some really uh, horrible actions on the part of a ruthless pagan dictator who just treats people like, like animals, basically. And then we finish, as we close things out today, we finish by observing, I guess, what you could call some morally questionable behavior on the, on the part of God's own people, stuff, stuff that makes you ask, you know, not only has God abandoned his people, but has God's people abandoned God? It's kind of what we end up uh, asking by the end of this today. So, so where is God in all of this? Does he have a plan? Can that plan possibly prevail against the power of, of Persia? Will that plan be derailed by these kind of morally ambiguous um, questionable actions on the part of his own people? Will their unfaithfulness undo it all? These are the questions that are, that are raised today. And, and then as you think about this and you kind of turn your eyes on ourselves, it's the, the question becomes, what hope do we have today as you know, the imperfect people of God also living uh, in ambiguous, unsettling times? What hope do we have of that plan unfolding for us? Today, you know, I think as you just think about the last the last week, I mean, this is the perfect um, week to be asking this question right here, as as followers of Jesus Christ. The the events of this last week, you know, that have really dominated the news and dominated the hearts of many people that I've talked to. I mean, they've, they've been upsetting. There are very few people that I've talked to this week that have not been shaken in some way um, by what has been going on. Nationally, And that's nothing to say of all the various people I've talked to this week who have had very unsettling events in their own lives, stuff that has shaken them right down. I mean, my prayer list this week is so long of, of different people right here in our, in our congregation who are really struggling with some things that make the future look very, very uncertain. So how confident can we be? as a community of followers of Jesus Christ right now, right here today in Tacoma, Washington, how confident can we be that God's plan has not been disrupted by all of this stuff? How, 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 how confident can we be that what has transpired has not caught him off guard, that it's not hindering his work in any way, actually? And on what basis can we, as, as individuals, have hope and, and have peace, even when 
things seem uncertain, even when God seems absent, like he's just not even part of the story at all, maybe. This is why we are so blessed to have the book of Esther in our Bibles. The book of Esther was written to the scattered people of God who were living in very uncertain times under a ruthless pagan rule, far from their homeland for the most part. Some Jews had returned uh, to Jerusalem in this kind of post-exile period, but many had not. They were scattered all over the world right now. And this was a people who needed to know that their God had not forgotten them. They needed to know that their God had a plan and, not, and nothing, not Persia, not anyone was going to get in the way of him bringing that good and perfect plan to completion. What a comfort this must have been to them. What a comfort I hope it is to each and every single one of us here. So let's dig into this story and see how this unfolds. We're gonna start with chapter one, verse one, where we are swept off to this dazzling feast. So open up your Bibles if you've got them. There's a lot of text today. We're going to be covering some ground. So follow along if you can. I'm going to have the text on your screen, but it'd be great if you have your own Bibles open or at least, you know, the app pulled up on your phone. It'll help a lot. Chapter one, verse one. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. So like we covered last week uh, in the big overview sermon, this would be Xerxes I, most likely, based off other historical documents that we have. The dates line up, the king of Persia. And, and at the time, Ahasuerus slash Xerxes, he was basically king of the world. This is his kingdom here. As you can see, stretches all the way from India to Ethiopia uh, with its 127 provinces. The arrow there, it's actually pointing to Susa right toward the center, the site of Xerxes' winter palace. It was too hot to live there year-round in the summer, but he lived there most of the year. And uh, it's actually now in modern-day Iran is, is where this is located. And right there is where the action of our story, everything we read in this book, it's going to take place right here. So let's go on to verse 2. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, so you history buffs, this would actually be uh, 483 B.C., Okay, so Xerxes uh, is 35 years old at this time. If you you want to kind of picture him, I'm 32, so picture me, three years older. Maybe add a stately black beard. This is what Xerxes looked like, according to most historians. He gave a feast for, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia, excuse me, the army of Persia and Media, Media being kind of their allies, the Medes, you hear them called elsewhere, they're, they're their allies and relatives within the kingdom. And the nobles and the governors of the provinces were before him, while he, Xerxes, showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days, half a year of festivities. And when these days were completed, The king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Can you kind of picture all of this? Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. So there's an open bar at this whole feast. And drinking was according to this edict, 
There is no compulsion, meaning you don't have to drink only when the king drinks. You can just go at your own pace here. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti, this would be Xerxes' wife, also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. So, wow. All right, this is quite a start to this book. We're, just, we're immediately swept off into this exotic world of, you know, porphyry and cotton hangings and all of this. And the purpose of, of all of this extravagance was to impress all of these bigwigs and, and military leaders that Xerxes had invited to the palace because he was getting ready to launch a massive military invasion. This is actually, when we compare this feast, again, with the dates and with other historical documents, the, the dates line up with this huge war council that King Xerxes had summoned in 483 BC to get um, all of his allies and all of the people, the military leaders and all the provinces of his, of his kingdom all jazzed up to do a huge um, invasion of Greece is, is what they were gonna do. This would be the same invasion uh, that includes the famous Battle of Thermopylae. Many, many movies have been made about this, you know, where they're fighting, the Persians are fighting the Spartans. This is like to get them ready for that. This is to drum up support for this invasion. So with that, you know, when all the leaders come to the palace and they get wined and dined and they see just this extravagance all around them, Xerxes, this is his way of saying, behold my power. Behold the power of, of Persia. Before, behold the splendor of my kingdom. Who could possibly stand against us? That's what he's trying to say with all this. So now follow me into battle. Well, ironically and comically, and very embarrassingly for Xerxes, in the very next scene, we find out who can stand up to the king of Persia. This would be scene two, the queen's rebellion. Verse 10. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, which that word in the Hebrew could mean anything from high-spirited to like he's stumbling drunk. Okay, so there's a spectrum there. He commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abagtha, Zether, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show all the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. Again, so he just wants to impress everybody, right? But... Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. Now, we're never actually told why it is that, that Vashti refuses to uh, come here when she is summoned. Some think that maybe the king was asking her to come out immodestly, maybe just in her royal crown is actually one way to read uh, the text here. So basically naked. Uh, it's possible, too, based on other historical sources, uh, that Queen Vashti was actually nine months pregnant at the time. If you line things up, she gave birth to one of Xerxes, his firstborn son and his heir, uh, right after this. So it's, it's very possible it would have actually been inappropriate culturally for her to come out, something that um, Xerxes, in his drunken state, had, had overlooked. So the queen actually might have been showing some wisdom and some tact here. But whatever the reason, Queen Vashti says no, and the king's heart is enraged. Remember, like this is a guy, he's trying to impress his army here, right? He's trying to convince these guys to follow him on this massive invasion. So how confident are they going to be in his strong leadership if he can't even get his own wife to come when she's called? You can see why the king is enraged. Scene three, the king's revenge. Verse 13. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, 
For this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law of judgment, and the men next to him being Karshina, Shether, Admatha, Tarshish, Maris, Marsena, and Memekin, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. Now he asks, According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs. And you know this guy thinks he's a big deal if he's referring to himself in the third person as King Ahasuerus, right? I mean, it's another way the writer is just kind of characterizing him, showing us what this guy is, is like. Then Memekin said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but against all the officials and all the people who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women causing them to look at their husbands with, with contempt, since they, are, they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath and plenty. In other words, they're all worried that this, you know, this rebellion, it's going to be contagious, that all their wives are going to be uh, rebellion, re rebellious in such manner. We need to nip this in the bud. If it please the king, they advise him, let a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed that Vashti is never again to come before queen, King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, again, this is the, you know, they're reminding us how big Persia is, how big and strong, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low, alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memucan proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household, and speak according to the language of his people, meaning that they will speak the husband's native tongue if they are a family of mixed ethnicity, not the wife's native language, the husband's. So a few things to observe in this scene here before we um, move on in, in the story. A few things that really, I think, help set us up that the narrator is pointing out, set us up for the story to come, what's going to unfold as things progress. You could call them examples of foreshadowing, all right? Example number one here would be the inapproachability of the king. It's interesting, these um, seven um, advisors and these seven guys alone are singled out as those who saw the king's face. Did you notice that? these men who saw the king's face. This means basically that they could talk to him, that they had access to the king in a very special way that nobody else did. This is going to become very significant later on in the story, this idea of the, the inapproachability of the king. Example number two of foreshadowing would be the irrevocability of the king's decree, meaning like when he makes a law, it's a law, and you can't go back on it at all. When this decree is written into law, it cannot be repealed, period. That's what's emphasized here. Again, this this part of uh, Persian government, this aspect of it's going to be very significant in the story as we move on. And then finally, number three example of foreshadowing here, what, what I think the narrator is really emphasizing in this whole chapter as a whole is just the absolute power of the king of Persia. It's what just stands out most vividly in, in, in all of this, this, this overwhelming authority that Ahasuerus wields over the ancient world at this time. I mean, think again of those details that the writer records in those first few paragraphs about the, um, the marble columns, precious stones, the food, the drinking, the golden vessels, all of that. Uh, you know, the Jews reading this, it would just, it would capture their imagination. 
It would, it would make them think, wow, this is what God's people are up against uh, in this story. The, the greatest power that the world has seen up to this time, this guy who with you know, a single word can, can make this law that's shot out all over the ancient world by swift horses to every you know, corner of every province. And all of a sudden, he's, he is, through his own words, reshaping the way that households are run, supposedly. We don't know how well this was enforced, but that's the idea of this first chapter. Is, uh, again, the question is raised, who can stand against the power of Persia? That's the, what the writer wants us to be thinking about right now in the narrative. On to scene four, the search for a queen. Chapter 2, verse 1. After these things, now this is actually, when we get, we get the date later on of when um, Esther becomes queen, so we know that this is actually four years after these things. There's a big gap between chapters 1 and 2. And in that gap, that's where they had uh, the big failed in, uh, invasion of Greece. Uh, it doesn't work out the way that, that uh, Xerxes had hoped. He comes back, and according to the Greek uh, historian, oh, did I just lose my mic here? My back? Okay. I wonder if my batteries are running dead. Do you guys think that? Nope, not the batteries. All right. So according to the Greek historian Herodotus, uh, Xerxes comes back from this invasion, uh, failed, and he spends like the next decade of his life indulging in sensual pleasures, and then he gets murdered in his bedroom. So just keep that in mind as we go through all of this. He's, he's got an unhappy ending coming, but we don't know any of that right now. He still thinks he's at kind of the height of his power. When the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa the citadel under the custody of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given to them and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. So, so one thing we need to make clear here is that this is not uh, you know, a, a beauty contest in, in terms of how we would think of it today. This, what, we're, what we're seeing right here in these verses is the forcible gathering of a harem by an absolute despot. This sort of thing happened in the ancient world. And, and, and here is where we, I think we really diverge from, I guess, what you could call the storybook Bible versions of the book of Esther. Like this story, it's in, it's in the toddler storybook Bible I've been reading to my two-year-old. It's nothing like what we see here. You know, these women were young. Uh, any age past the, the age of, of puberty would have been fair game here. They probably weren't much older than that if they were still, you know, unmarried virgins. The text even says that they were young virgins. This gathering was not voluntary. This wasn't like, oh, this exciting thing like the invitation to the ball in, you know, in Cinderella where, oh, this order is sent out throughout the kingdom and all these women are signing up. I get my chance to see if you know, uh, I, I can be queen. No, what, what we're reading about here, this is human trafficking if we're gonna use uh, today's terms for it. This was hearing a knock on your door in whatever you know, village you lived in throughout this vast kingdom you know, India to Ethiopia, hearing a knock on your door and there are soldiers there, officials of the king, and all of a sudden, you're never gonna see your family again. You're taken all the way to Susa. Any hope of marriage that you had, even if you were betrothed to someone else and you're, oh, who cares, that's gone. Any friendships that you had, goodbye. 
You belong to the king now, so you are taken. The passive sense, these were gathered. They're taken to the palace, and, and then this is what would happen when you're there. Jump down to verse 12. Now, when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil and myrrh and six months of spices and ointments for the women, when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem, which was a separate building, to the king's palace. So, you know, she could take jewelry, she could take clothes, beauty products, you know, whatever, whatever, she could take it with her. In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem, another, uh, um, another building. This is where you went after you had slept with the king, in custody of Shaskaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. So what the writer's describing right here is each of these girls' initiation as a concubine. She would have this whole year of you know, extensive beauty treatments and sometime after that, each girl would get her one night with the king and at the evening, out of the morning. So it's a sexual audition, basically, is, is what, what you could call it. And unless the king delighted in her and, and summed her, summoned her again by name, she would never go into the king again. This is how harems worked. You know, and remember, there were hundreds and hundreds of girls uh, who, who were part of this from throughout this huge and vast kingdom. Uh, the big majority of these girls would never see the king again. They would see him once, and, and that was it again. This is how harems worked at this time. They were this... Um, display of wealth and power, like a trophy case. People would, you know, go by this, the second harem and they would say, wow, look at all of these women who are, who are here that the king has had. This, is an, this must be an amazing, powerful king. The king would sleep with each girl, thereby kind of marking her, claiming her as his own, and then he would set her aside in that collection, never to be used again. She would then live the rest of her life in what uh, one historian called this um, life of luxurious desolation in the harem complex. She could never be with another man. She would not ever have children. She would never see her family again. She'd basically live in this gilded prison for the rest of her days. It was, it was awful for, for most of these girls who, again, would never, uh, you know, they, they had no, absolutely no say in this matter at all. I should add that it was not much better for Persian boys in this, this kingdom either. Um, several times in this passage, you've heard the mention of, of eunuchs, these servants of the king. Well, that same Greek historian Herodotus tells us that uh, once per year, King Xerxes would gather 500 boys from throughout his kingdom, young boys. He would bring them to the palace. He would have them castrated, and then he would keep them as slaves for the rest of their lives. This is, you know, once again, the writer's recording all of this to get us to ask this question, who can prevail against the power of Persia? You know, who's plan could possibly stand against the will of this king who, who you know, gathers young women like cattle and who uh, castrates young boys like horses? Who could stand against him? Back to verse 5. Now, there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. So again, like, like we covered last week, this explains why all these Jews are here in Susa, because of the, the exile, the punishment that God had given his people for pursuing idols, allowed a foreign army to invade the land and carry away many of the people. That's why so many of them are here. Mordecai was bringing up Hadassah, 
That is Esther. Now, notice that she has two names. This isn't called the book of Hadassah in the Bible. It could have been. That's one of her names as well. But these two names, one uh, Hebrew, uh, the other Persian, reflect the identity struggle. That's going to be playing a very big part in Esther uh, as we move forward. Again, just notice that foreshadowing. The daughter of his uncle, his cousin, for she had neither father nor mother. So Esther is an orphan girl. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther was also taken into the king's palace. Again, this isn't something that she signed up for. And put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. Cream rises to the top, my mom always says. And he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. So already, this is well before she's seen the king or anything, just in her month of beautifying and stuff, she's already like distinguishing herself. Verse 10, Esther had not made known her people or kindred, so she's not telling anybody she's a Jew, because Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day, Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Remember, he's an official, so he's kind of around the palace, so he tries to stay as close as he can to stay in the know of what is going on with her during this year of preparation. Down to verse 15. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. So Esther, used, she's kind of using some strategy here, right? She's getting some intel from this guy who's the head of all the women here, who kind of, you know, he knows the king, knows what he wants, and she's using that to give her, herself an advantage over the young women in the harem. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken in to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month of Tebet in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity, which is a very uh, clever political strategy to make sure that everybody's rejoicing. You know, he's rejoicing because he got a new wife. Everyone else is rejoicing because they got stimulus checks. It's just like the whole kingdom is happy at once. And here's where we stop today. You know, Esther's, Esther's wearing the crown. The nation is feasting and celebrating. It's it's a happy ending. Or is it? You know, that would kind of be the question. I think there's some ambiguity and uncertainty here that would be raised in the minds of the Jewish readers of this book and the generations immediately uh, following Esther. This is what they would be wondering at this point in the story. Because I think up to this point right here where we're pausing today, it would be very difficult for the, the average Jewish reader to see just what sort of story this was going to be. You know, is this a feel-good story, or is this a warning? 
Is the writer pointing to us as Esther as, as this shining example of what it looks like to be a faithful follower of God in very difficult circumstances? Or does her behavior serve as a warning to you know, all the Jews reading this right now of how easy it is to let the allure and the pressure of a dominant culture transform you in a negative way? Story can be read both ways, actually, um, at this point, depending on how you kind of fill in some of these gaps in the narrative. Let me just point out a couple examples of, uh, of what um, many interpreters have called uh, the striking moral ambiguity of this scene right before us that we've just looked at. And first and foremost, I think we need to just acknowledge that, that yes, Esther finds herself here in an awful situation for a young Jewish girl, but for any girl to be in, really but especially someone who is part of God's people trying to be faithful to the, way, to the ways of God. Because what King Ahasuerus does to these young women really is nothing less than formalized rape, again, in today's terms. They had no choice in the matter. And rape is something for which women are never held accountable in the Bible. They're, they're, in fact, the law of Moses specifically says that a woman is innocent in such cases. So let's just get that off the table right now. But complicating all of this when it comes to Esther's behavior uh, in the harem in that first year of, you know, like getting ready for this is the fact that she actively hides her Jewish identity. As the text says in verse 10, Esther had not made known her people or kindred for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And, th and this verse has been very troubling for Jewish interpreters throughout the centuries because, you know, we primarily think of ethnic identity as racial, right? Like, you know, you, you look at the color of someone's skin or whatever and that, you know, it tells you their race right away. Well, for the Jews and for the people at this time, it was actually more religious than anything else. So when Esther hid her identity, does this mean that she abandoned her obligation to follow the Torah, the Jewish law? It seems like that would have to be the case because uh, concealing her Jewish identity would mean she couldn't keep the Sabbath, right? I mean, that would be a dead, a dead giveaway that she's Jewish because you know, if she's you know, taking this one day to do nothing. Or to make a big deal about eating kosher. It talks about, you know, specifically that the guy was bringing her her portion of food and stuff. Does that mean she didn't eat the vast majority of the things that were served her? Again, that would be a dead giveaway of, of her Jewishness. What about honoring the idols that would be um, throughout the palace complex? Did she abstain from that? Again, another dead giveaway uh, of her Jewishness. So how could she reveal, how could she conceal her Jewish identity without conforming to the pagan environment around her? Do you see where that tension could be? I think of Daniel um, as kind of an obvious counterexample to this from this same general period of exile earlier than Esther. But do you remember how he responded when he lived in the king's palace? The, the writer makes a big deal about this in the first couple chapters of Daniel, holding him up as this positive example because he says, no, 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 I'm not going to eat the food from the king's table because it's not kosher, right? And he just eats vegetables and stuff. And what happens? God blesses him for it. Even though there was a lot of pressure to do otherwise, he ends up being this you know, wonderful witness to the people around him. Uh, and I also think about his friends who, you know, they were under an enormous pressure to worship the, the king's image and they end up getting thrown in the fiery furnace. But what happens? God protects them. God blesses them for that. So the question would probably be raised in the Jewish readers' minds here, should Esther have done the same? Esther's behavior also comes into question, again, traditionally from Jewish interpreters throughout the centuries, as she's preparing for her night with the king. Like, you know, like I said earlier, this is a forced sexual encounter that she's facing, so it's a little different than if she was just like preparing to seduce some um, Gentile pagan guy in her village, you know, or something like that. She's not doing that, that's for sure. But at the same time, as we read through the, the narrative here, uh, it does not seem like Esther is just merely going along 
uh, with the pressures, uh, you know, to go into the king. It seems like she's trying to make the most of it. She seeks out advice, you know, from the, um, the eunuch who's in charge of all the women. She, um, she tries to do what pleases the king better than anyone else, and it just seems like she's in this thing to win it. You know what I mean? And again, it raises the question, has the allure of the crown gotten to her a little bit? Is, is there a part of Esther's heart that maybe has bought into these Persian values uh, around her rather than, you know, the Torah that she was raised with? All these are questions that would be raised in the minds of, of the Jewish readers looking at this text for the very first time. And I should say that throughout the centuries, answers for all of them have been proposed, right? You, you can defend Esther's behavior here. You can make a, ga- a case that she's righteous and faithful all along. Again, first citing these horrible circumstances in which she found herself, which are, you know, there's big allowances made for that sort of thing. The fact that she's simply following Mordecai's advice, you know, and concealing her Jewishness. She's honoring him to doing that, and that's, that's admirable, you know, that she's seeking to, to honor him. There's even speculation that Esther may have found kind of secret, uh, covert ways to keep the Sabbath and to eat kosher, you know, uh, secretly without revealing her identity. But you know what? There comes a point when you realize that trying to evaluate Esther's heart here, it's just a total exercise in futility. And on top of that, it's a major red herring when it comes to the actual point of the story. Because the point of this story is not to hold up Esther as this, you know, moral example that all of us need to follow. And, and it, it's also uh, not to try to get us to um, behave better so that then we can be, you know, come through for ourselves in the clutch and save us when it really counts. The point of this book is to show how, despite the power of Persia, despite the questionable moral behavior on the part of God's people, despite, despite the utter ruthlessness and ego of this king, despite all of that, God's plan still prevails. That's what we see so clearly as this story unfolds. We see that everything in these first two chapters is a setup for what is to come. Everything in these two chapters is designed to show us all the stuff that God was up against and how even so, despite all of that, God's plan still prevails. Can anything disrupt the good and perfect plan of God? The answer that we see in the book of Esther as this story unfolds is a firm and resounding no. Nothing can. No political power can disrupt God's plan. No pagan king uh, can disrupt God's plan no matter how many laws he wants to write, no matter how angry he wants to get. He's not going to prevail. None of our personal failures can disrupt God's plan No matter the obstacles, no matter the setting, God's plan will always prevail so God's people can rest in his care. That's that's where things are going in the book of Esther. That's what these first really dark chapters are setting us up for. Because yeah, what, what we see in these chapters, it is awful what he does to these young women. And it is scary when you think of just the sheer power of this king over the scattered people of God. So much of what we see on the news and, and, and all around us is, is dark and scary as well. 
But it is so encouraging to see that God uses everything in these first few chapters for the good of his people and the greatness of his glory. He's, he's orchestrating everything we see here with an invisible hand. All those crazy circumstances, the way Esther keeps rising to the top in everything. God is using that. He's setting, them, he's setting this all up for the salvation of his people before they even know that there is a threat. It's extraordinary. This is what God does. This is kind of his M.O. throughout uh, the entire Bible, throughout the stories of Scripture, which are even all of the Old Testament written for our instruction and our benefit as followers of Jesus today. You meant this for evil, Joseph says at the end of his story in Genesis, but God meant this for good. You meant this for evil, but God meant this for good. Every single one of us, when it's all over, we look back on our lives the story of our world, the story of us as individuals, we're going to have points where we can look back and say the very same thing. So what a blessing it is to walk through an uncertain, ambiguous world as the imperfect people of God and to know that in Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, our perfect and powerful God is with us every single step of the way, and his plan can never fail. Please pray with me. Father, as we pause here at this, book of, at this point in the book of Esther, and as we think about the story of our own lives, which for everyone here is not finished, we trust you for the chapters to come. We, we can't see them, but you can. We, we don't know how we might get past some of the obstacles in our lives or some of the powers that are in, in our world and seem to be um, taking things in a very negative direction. But Lord, we know you can see past all of that. We know that in your son, Jesus, you already have the victory. And you're seeing past all of this darkness to the dawn of new creation the resurrection of our bodies, and life everlasting with you. What a blessing that is, Lord. Father, I pray that by your spirit, you would help us to live in faith, that you would help us to rest in your care, that you would help us to encourage one another and to keep doing good by your power in this dark world. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, amen.